My guest today was a senior research scientist at NASA in their space food lab. She worked to figure out what astronauts are going to eat when they go to Mars. Please welcome Maya Cooper. Maya, how's it going? Oh, it's good. How are you? Hey, I'm doing fine. I'm doing all right. Thank you for coming on to the podcast. We appreciate it. Uh, no problem. All right. Well, hey, you did something that was very unique and very fascinating, and you were featured a lot for the work that you did. And I wanted to talk to you about that and want to see if you would let everybody know what you did. Absolutely. would love to share. So what did you do? Uh, okay. <laughs> So for 10 years, I worked as a senior research scientist out at NASA in the space food lab. And so my primary responsibility was to figure out what astronauts are going to eat when they go to Mars. And so we worked really hard with a number of research studies to try and get to that answer. Not only what they would eat, but the types of variety, what nutritional requirements they would need, et cetera. And so a number of studies that we worked on, um, experimental design, uh, looking at different types of foods, doing the appropriate analysis, measuring safety and taste after they were made over long periods of time, just trying to figure out what kind of diet we could supply the astronauts with. That's awesome. That's great. Now let's talk about how did you get to that point? So I believe you were a chemical engineer major coming out of undergrad. So going from there, how did you get to where you are now? How did you know that this is something you wanted to do? So I, I majored in chemical engineering in undergrad, knowing that I was good in chemistry and math. And that really was my understanding of the chemical engineering field. When I got into chemical engineering at Texas A&M University, and was very much steered towards the oil industry, I realized that was something that I did not want to do. Right. <laughs> and so I immediately began researching what else could I do with this degree <laughs> that would not be the oil industry. And so if you go major in chemical engineering in the Midwest, there are different opportunities just because of where the companies are based. And so I had a friend who was majoring in chemical engineering at Purdue University, and she was telling me about the opportunities they had with pharmaceutical companies, with food companies, all the consumer goods companies like Procter & Gamble, Clorox, et cetera. They all hired chemical engineers. And I was like, you never hear about those jobs in Texas because they steer all the chemical engineers towards the oil industry. Right. So my junior year, I decided to try and get a job in the food industry. I went to the National Society of Black Engineering Conference and just was literally begging Frito-Lay and General Mills for a job, a summer internship. <laughs> Made great contacts with Frito-Lay, but I was out of their cycle. And so actually wound up getting a job that summer with General Mills. And so that was really my first formal job with the food industry. Okay. So now, how'd you get over from that now to NASA? How did that work out? So I continued to do internships in the food industry. I went and got a master's from Purdue University in food and bioprocess engineering. I actually started my career at Frito-Lay doing research and development. So I made chips for the first seven years of my career. When I was ready to leave Frito-Lay, I started researching jobs and came across this job at NASA 
that I was skilled for. I had the background that they were looking for. And I knew that I had the scientific wherewithal to actually do the experimental design to answer a lot of the questions that they needed answering. So I gave it a shot, took my shot (laughs) and got the job. That is awesome. All right. So went from making chips and then transitioned over to working at NASA. Now, how was that transition? Was that an easy transition for you? It was difficult to adjust in terms of pace because the commercial industry is so fast paced and you get you get caught up in the cycle of you develop a food product and you try and get it on the shelf by February, which is when the grocery stores would have major shelf resets. And so everything was always boom, 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 hit your targets, hit your taste design, get it in the market. NASA, I mean, for 10 years, I worked trying to answer what do astronauts eat when they go to Mars? They're not planning on going to Mars until 2039. I started addressing that question in 2009, 30 years before they ever would eat the food. (laughs) And so the time scale is just dramatically different. The pace is dramatically different. But you're answering questions that have more impact, I guess. Mm -hmm. If you make a mistake on a chip, you pull it from the shelf and you put another chip in in three months, right? right? Because it's not selling. Like if we make a mistake on the food that we send with the astronauts to where we don't consider everything that they need, we could potentially cost someone's life. So it was to do due diligence to make sure that we were getting the right answers to those questions. Wow. Now getting to that, you're working on the food that they're going to be using on these missions to Mars. So I'm guessing you're looking at trying to increase the shelf life of the food, the nutritional content of the food. You're trying to reduce any effects of radiation. You're, I guess, trying to see if there's any way that the food can be grown without soil and all, all these different aspects. So can you kind of walk through how you're doing this? What what type of testing you're doing for this? So it's a huge problem. Yeah. So we didn't try and attack all of the problem at once right. because that would be overwhelming. So so we broke the problem into, into smaller chunks, per se. So we had one experiment that just looked at how the nutritional content of the food would change over a five-year period after it was processed. So currently, space food is mainly freeze-dried or is thermostabilized. So we had our current food system, and we just studied how the nutritional content would degrade over time. Because that was the first question you have to answer. You don't know how you need to fortify the food if you don't know what's going to be there at the end of the shelf life. And so that was the first question. Then we had another experiment that we designed that set up to say, if we stored the food under different conditions, so if we put it in a freezer, if we put it in a refrigerator, how does that compare to if we store it at room temperature? And so right now we store everything at room temperature, but you know, I know the listeners know if you store food in the refrigerator, it lasts longer. Uh There are some power issues with that, which is why NASA doesn't normally store food in a refrigerator, but for a mission to Mars, maybe it's necessary. And so we we did a whole experiment where we took food and we put it in a refrigerator, we put it in a freezer and we said, what kind of impact does this have on our shelf life or how long the food will last. Does it have an impact on the nutritional content? Does it have an impact on the palatability of the food? What can we really change? And then you can start making trades to determine whether it's worthwhile to have that extra infrastructure into the space vehicle. We had an experiment that took a look at variety. So how do the current astronauts eat in space? Contrary to what a lot of people think, we don't tell the astronauts what to eat every day. 
Like there's not like the meal. We like this is your breakfast, this is your lunch, etc. They have a pantry of food, and they pick what they want to eat. I mean, because they're grown men and women, you can't really tell them what they want to <laughs> eat for breakfast, lunch. You, you go to the pantry and you get what you want to eat. And so there are times we'll have crews that will be very meat heavy. So you know the guys they like they'll eat a lot of meat and they won't eat as many vegetables. And then there are some crews they eat a lot of vegetables and they may like avoid the red meat and only eat the chicken. And it is very sensitive to the particular crew member. And so we wanted to do a study to determine what are the patterns that we can see as to how a crew member eats and how might we predict that that will change over time. So currently the crew, they eat the space food for six months. That's the average length of the time they spend on International Space Station. So they'll start out trying everything first two months, and then they sort of get into a pattern and they'll figure out what they like and what they don't like, and that's what they'll eat. And then by the time they get ready to go home, they're starting to get tired of the food. Well, imagine if you have to extend that to three years. So if you eat the food for the first two months and you're trying everything, okay, at six months, if you're tired of the food, you still have two and a half more years to eat that same food system. You can't DoorDash. <laughs> you can't get in the car and drive to your favorite restaurant. The food that you have with you is the food. And so we needed to understand how do you manipulate the available variety such that they don't get tired of it? Do you do it with the addition of different condiments so they can sort of change how the food tastes? Do you reserve part of the food and introduce it later into the mission so they feel like they're getting a new food supply, even if it's the same food food supply that was shipped up at the beginning, it's sort of like new to them and you and you sort of re-energize their interest in the food system. People tend to think that the astronauts, well, if they get hungry, they'll eat. They'll eat to live, but they won't eat enough to stay healthy. Right. You have to actually like what you're eating in order to eat enough to stay healthy. And they have to be healthy on the Mars mission in order to get back home safely. And so it's important that even as the risk of them not eating increases, that we're able to maintain um, that they get adequate food intake and adequate nutritional intake at the end of the mission, because that's when the risk is the highest when they're trying to get back to Earth. Right. Okay. Now, what about the taste? How does some of this food taste like? And also, you mentioned condiments. I heard that for some of these missions, they're bringing Tabasco up there. Oh, yeah. Tabasco is our most popular condiment. (laughs) (laughs) So, So there's a physiological phenomenon that happens in space where the astronauts, the fluid shifts in the body. So you feel like you have a head cold. So just imagine that you have a head cold and like you really can't taste anything. So in order to drive the taste, they'll add a lot of hot sauce. And the hot sauce is what sort of sparks their taste buds again. You have dramatically reduced ability to smell in space, so you can't smell. And so it affects how you're able to taste the food. One of the things that we were conscious of as we do all of our testing for as many tests as possible, we try and put the food, not only do we test it in terms of nutrition and and how some of the texture might change, et cetera, we always try and put it in front of a taste panel if we have enough samples so that we have real people eating the food that the astronauts are going to eat because that allows us on a human level to determine how the food really tastes. Wow. Okay. 
All right. One other thing is trying to reduce the effects of radiation. How are you able to do that with the foods? So we've done a couple of studies with regards to the radiation and, and the going proposal now is that we will likely have radiation shielding. So the food will be kept with the crew and the crew to protect their health would need some sort of radiation shielding. So that should be protected. It's tricky when you get into an environment, say you have a habitat environment and you want to start growing your food because then you have the food that may not necessarily be with the crew because it's in a different greenhouse type area, but you still have to be cognizant of radiation shielding so you can not have radiation impact the food in terms of nutritional content, et cetera. Wow, that's fascinating. All right. And now, so the food that's going up there, this is just the same food that we're eating, right? Just processed differently? Or is it food that you're also kind of created in test tubes? No, it's not test. It's real food. Okay. So so there, there's like an idea. It's not Jetson food. We wish we could like drop a pill and have it turn into a burger. It, it's nothing that scientifically awe inspiring. <laughs> we, we go to the local market. We pick up fish and vegetables and steak and chicken. And the way that we cook the food is what's really great. So we start with real ingredients. And then through either freeze drying or thermal stabilization, freeze drying, you remove all of the liquid from the food. So it has less than 3% moisture. And then they add the moisture back when they're ready to eat it. So it sort of rehydrates it, sort of like the little tiny dinosaurs and you add the water and then they expand. Mm. It's the same sort of concept with the food. And the second item is thermal stabilization. And that's basically the same heat process that most canned foods get in the grocery store. We don't actually can the foods, but we serve them in like the pouches. I mean, there actually are a lot of pouched foods in the store now, too. Like you see the pouched tuna or the pouched salmon. The Indian food has a lot of pouched products on the ethnic dial. So all of that food is thermal stabilized, which means you put the food in and it's actually cooked inside of the pouch, but you raise the heat to a point to where all the bacteria that's inside the pouch is dead. Mm-hmm. If the bacteria is dead, then the food can't spoil. And so then you can store it at room temperature without worrying about spoilage. Okay. And so really just two main types of food processing that you do for the foods that you're experimenting on and sending out there. Okay. All right. Yeah. There's, there's another, there's a third type that's irradiated meats and we don't use that one as much, but we do have special approval from Congress to irradiate the meat. It's not a food process that they normally allow in You wouldn't find irradiated food in the grocery store to the level that we're irradiating the meats, but you can irradiate steak or beef fajitas. And those items, after we dose them with the radiation, which is safe to the human, there's no need to be concerned. It can last for about four years as long as it stays in the pouch. So, And the pouch is similar to a, a military MRE. So as long as it stays in that pouch, it's safe for four years at room temperature. Wow. Wow. Okay. Very fascinating stuff. Now, talking about fascinating stuff, I mentioned earlier that you've been featured quite a lot. You were featured in O Magazine and an AP article, Nickelodeon. I had a CNN international interview with Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Can you talk about some of these? This, how, Especially the Nickelodeon. How did that work out? So Nickelodeon had a foray into um, a non-traditional programming back in the mid 
around 2014, somewhere in that time frame, where they had a show. It was Nick for Moms, and it was a late night show. And this lady, the premise was that she had a, a child and she was going around exploring different careers. Mm. Well, one day she came to Johnson Space Center and she wanted to explore what moms did at Johnson Space Center. And so she talked to maybe four people while she was at Johnson Space Center. And I was one of the moms that she talked to. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, now what about the others? You were on uh, Old Magazine. Oprah. So yeah, I was featured in O Magazine. Similar to this, it was like she does what for a living. That was in t- 2012, and I'd met one of the authors for O Magazine at actually a chemical conference that I was giving a talk at on behalf of NASA, talking about some of the chemical changes within the food in terms of nutrition that we were currently tracking and where our interest was in that area. And he talked to me after and he was like, hey, what you do is really fascinating. Would you mind if I got in contact with you later? And I said, sure, absolutely. You know, we can always chat. And he had not introduced himself as an author for O Magazine. He actually wrote for a number of different magazines because he was a freelance writer. And so I believe it was a more scientific journal. But then he calls me one day and he's like, hey, I'd like to do an article for O Magazine. And of course it's Oprah, you know, say no to Oprah. And so that's how that article went into being. So that was an exciting time as well. That is cool. And then the interview with Dr. Sanjay Gupta, how did that work out? That interview spurred from a NASA media day that they had a couple of years back. And and they actually brought in, I think the AP article was around the same time as well. They brought in a number of media folks to try and drum up interest in public interest in, in what NASA was doing to get ready for Mars missions. Um, a lot of people weren't aware that we were even seriously making efforts currently to go to Mars. A lot of the general public isn't aware that there are people in space, like right now have had a continuous space presence for the last 20 years. And so they really wanted to strive to get that message out. And so one of the stops on the media tour was the food lab where I gave a media briefing to the folks that came about the work that we were doing and and where we hoped to play a role in making manned missions from Mars possible. Wow. Okay. That's really cool, Maya. All right. So let's talk about a typical day. What did a typical day look like for you? So typically, well, there is no typical day. So it depends on where you are in your experimental process. And it actually varies according to the month of the year. Like um, because NASA is on a federal fiscal calendar, it generally runs from October to September. So we used to traditionally start a lot of new projects or new studies in October. So you would spend the summertime framing your proposals of studies that you wanted to do and seeking directed funds or external funding to make those studies happen. Um, You would spend October, once the budgets were approved, getting materials in, lining up all the infrastructure needs for for that experiment, and then you would start running the experiment. So for us, because we did a lot of food experiments, we might spend months making food, like literally going to work and making large batches of foods and then separating it by experimental conditions and setting up our test protocols. Beyond that, like once once the time frame comes where you're getting data on the food, you might be running sensory panels, giving samples. We have a volunteer sensory panel at Johnson Space Center 
where they're able folks from around the center come in and they taste the food for us. So running those sensory panels. We have a number of analytical tests that we run on the food that we're able to do in-house. So for instance, moisture is one thing that we can measure for our dried food so we can see how the moisture changes over time. Color, if you think about how you know that a food is bad in your refrigerator, it might be a green food is starting to turn brown. So we have an analytical instrument that measures color. And then we use that as an indicator of chemical changes that are occurring in the foods. You might be doing color samples, pH testing, et cetera. And we also do a lot of work with other groups. So as I talk about, we might need a refrigerator or freezer. There's an infrastructure group that's actually working on what that might look like in space. So we may talk to those folks and they may ask us, hey, how much space do you think you're needing in the refrigerator and freezer? So it's very much a collaborative process where you'll meet with those teams to talk about that. You may meet with the nutritional biochemistry team to talk about um, requirements for another vitamin or mineral bioactive that they think they want to track in the food system. I mean, you know, it's a collaborative. How do we establish data on the stability of that particular substance in food? There was no typical day. Right. <laughs> I see. <laughs> wow. So, so you're also doing the framing the, and the proposals and the budgets as well? Or is that a different group yes. that's doing that? Oh, no. Okay. So so our team was very small, actually. And so a lot of the proposal work, like we would work together, figure out what we want to test. We would write the proposals. It would get sent up to human resource program management, and they would decide whether the proposal would get funded for that year or not. And then they give you an uh, authority to proceed letter, which says, yes, you're going to get the money and we give you our permission to go do this study. And you can sort of do the contract paperwork to start adding money and, and running the experiments. So. Oh. Okay. So with that alone, I'm seeing you having to have your written and verbal communication skills, analytical skills. It seems like you just have a lot of hats that you wear in this job. Can you talk about what you think, the skills and characteristics you think are most important to be successful in your line of business? To be successful in this job, you really have to be an analytical thinker. And that's probably going to be the skill that is most useful. We're asking really tough questions, really tough questions of a lot of consequence. And so the idea is that you want to make sure that you're able to get meaningful answers to that question within this realm of resources that you have. So we have, then I'm going to give you an example. So there are 200 plus foods in the current food system. There's no way we could test 200 foods mm. out to like five years to see if they lasted. I mean, you, you just, it's not feasible. So then you have to think about how do you strategically pick foods so you can actually start making conclusions about the whole food system. So you have to really be able to, to think outside of the box gather all the skills that you know, all of your background knowledge and really make decisions in that aspect. You have to be able to be a good writer, a good communicator. You know, at the end of each study, I wrote what was generally considered a dissertation. Like I have study reports that were over 100, 150 pages. And, and you want to carefully document all of the results and conclusions that you have, because the worst case scenario is that you lose that information and 10 years from now, somebody has to come back and repeat what was a five-year experiment for you. 
So that's that's absolutely important. Um, we issue technical papers, and so you want to be able to communicate to the larger scientific community as a whole as well. Um, I did budget hat, right? I had to make sure that we weren't overspending the grant that we were given. And so for me, as a senior scientist, the junior scientists didn't have to do that. But as a senior scientist, I had to make sure that we're spending the projected amount on labor and materials, and we're on schedule to when we thought we were going to give NASA results. So I also served as the project manager of sports for all of these research studies. Um, so I think those things allow me to be really successful in the role. And then all of the softer things like communicating to the public. We give a lot of tours in the food lab during non-COVID times. Like a lot of Girl Scouts will come through. All the interns will come through. We have Friends and Family Day where people from Johnson Space are bringing their friends and they always come to the food lab. And as much as we like to think that we're hardcore scientists and stuff, we do our science at the will of the public because we are federally funded. So you have to be able to communicate your mission and what you're doing and why it's important in such a way that a non-scientist can understand it. And so that was also key to the role. Oh, yeah. No, that makes sense. you got to be able to communicate it on a, a level for your peers when you're writing your 150-page yes. papers, but you also have to be able to <laughs> speak in layman's terms and talk to regular people out there about what you do yes. and what, what's going on. Okay. Very interesting. All right, now we talked about the food. What about utensils? Utensils that the astronauts are going to be using. Do you work with that at all? So they use standard utensils. Oh, okay. They use and they get a knife, a fork, and a spoon issued to them. Okay. Um, and it, it's the surface tension of the food itself. So the food isn't completely dry. Most of it has like a gravy base, like either a gravy or some sort of liquid water component that's in there that tension of the water will make it stick to the fork or the spoon or the knife unless they're jostled. So a lot of what you see in space, like if they throw like M&Ms in the air and they try and eat them with their mouth, it's because they, they chose to do that. <laughs> um, if, you, if you put the food on a fork and you actually eat it, it stays on the fork. If you jerk your arm motion to where it's rapid and sudden, then the food will leave the fork because you'll break that surface tension. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> now, you talked about your steps, how you got to where you are, but is there a typical steps that people take to get to being a research scientist, food scientist? So there are two paths. And generally, the people that do food research, they're either chemical engineers or food and bioprocess engineers. And those two curriculums are very similar. And then you have food scientists. And so most of the people I worked with were actually of a food science background, a lot of uh, food chemistry, analytical chemistry, sensory science that you take as a food scientist. As an engineer, you focus mainly on the heat transfer and mass transfer properties that occur during the cooking process. And a lot of the major companies, if you want to work in research and development, they will have the engineers and the scientists paired together to utilize both of those disciplines in the development of a large-scale food item. At NASA, it was similar. I worked with a lot of food scientists and I was the engineer. And so uh, we, we basically joined knowledge to sort of relate how we would develop the experiments. Okay. And now, can you talk about what you love about what you do? 
What do I love? <laughs> I, I love answering questions. So so I'm a nerd at heart. I am. <laughs> and so I like I like understanding why things happen the way they do and searching to get to that answer. The whole reason I thought being an engineer would be for me because I heard one of those high school talks that says an engineer is a problem solver. And I'm like, that's me. I solve problems. <laughs> and so so I really like that about the job. I like the uniqueness of the job. So there aren't too many people out there that can say, oh, I develop space food. You know, I, I like the caveat that that you're doing something that's purposeful and meaningful. And it has like this purpose. We don't get the food right to where astronauts have a sustainable menu. There is no mission to Mars. Like, and you go to work every day knowing that, like there are all these vehicle designers and they know if they don't get the vehicle right, there's no mission to Mars. But if we don't get the food right, you're not sending people to Mars because you can't send people without food. And so knowing that you could have that kind of impact on a national program was something that really drove us to do the work that we do. Nice. Now, what about on the flip side, what type of challenges or obstacles are out there? Government work is slow. I'll say that. So, so I missed the pace. I had a, one study that was eight years long. I mean, by year five, you're like, I just want to write the answer. <laughs> I don't want to do this study anymore. Um, and so and so and so the pace is something that that that's getting used to. There's government bureaucracy. So you have to wonder from year to year if your funding is gonna still be there. So you have like an integrated research plan that sort of carries you years into the future. But I mean, every year you're waiting on to say, yes, you get the same amount of money, NASA, and then it's a trickle-down effect to where you can know whether your experiments are going to be funded to continue. And that's just sort of a precarious position to be in. Yeah, no, I definitely can see that. And I guess, were you working there when they're, I guess, when did they say they were stopped sending space shuttles to space? Oh, I was there. But that wasn't that wasn't necessarily a change to our program. Okay. So so they stopped the shuttle program. I think the last shuttle went up in 2012. Um, so that was right. probably my third year at NASA somewhere around there. But that was more of a calculated decision that NASA made because the shuttles, they were old and the amount of money right. it would take to maintain right. them was just too much. And so, so they had a pathway where, and we're just now seeing the end part of that pathway, but they said, we're going to have to bite the bullet and for a number of years use the Russian vehicle to get our people into space while we develop our own vehicle. And so you'll see this month with the launch of SpaceX that that's coming to fruition where NASA now has a vehicle on American soil where they can get people back up to the International Space Station. The types of changes that I was talking about is more programmatic. So what you may see is you know, if NASA's budget gets cut by... $2 billion. Okay, where does that money go to? And so you'll see a cut for the human research program that may be $550 million, $500 million. So then it trickles down. And, and it sometimes it's like, okay, we're not going to fund this group of programs anymore. But sometimes it's like, I need for everybody to cut 10% off their budget. You know, and so then you have to go back into your research portfolio and say, Okay, what experiment do we not do this year, you know, or do we delay or can we scale back so that we can stay within 
our budget. Right. Wow. All right. Now, can you talk about any memorable moments that you've had over your career? <laughs> so memorable moments. Let me see. So this isn't as scientific, but in order to conduct one experiment that I talked about with the refrigeration and mm-hmm. freezing, we didn't have internal capability to do that. So I bought a trailer and apparently <laughs> one, you have to get a lot of permission to have like a temporary building brought on site at Johnson Space Center. And I thought we had checked all of the boxes on that building until the center director's office called me and they had started asking questions about this trailer. And I'm like, I'm going down for buying a trailer. <laughs> like out of all the different things you can mess up on in NASA, this can't be what I go down for. And so, so that was one. And then the trailer was delivered on the day that a hurricane was coming to town. Like literally a hurricane was forecast to come to Houston that exact evening. And it wound up being like a tropical storm, but it was a hurricane at the time. And so I'm calling people because not only did I just spend tens of thousands of dollars on this trailer, the last thing I needed was the trailer to go flying across the parking lot. (laughs) And so I'm calling facilities. I'm authorizing overtime. I don't even know if I had authority (laughs) to authorize overtime, but I'm authorizing overtime to get people to come put hurricane states in the trailer to make sure that it does not move in terms of this storm that was happening that evening. So (laughs) it's funny that, like out of all the experiences, that trailer caused me more <laughs> heartache and just anxiety and RS than any of the food analytical testing or preparation or anything like that. But wow. it's the logistics of getting the job done. <laughs> so working with the radiation and the packaging and all that, this trailer was the one thing. The <laughs> trailer the that was yeah. <laughs> Like everything else is controllable, right? Like you have you have your ups and your downs, but it's all controllable. That trailer was like a big unknown and it was all like there's nobody to call. It's all on me. They're like Maya, your trailer. I'm like, no, no, no. Let's not let's call it the labs trailer. <laughs> let's call it something different besides Maya's trailer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it got done. It got done. Were you able to use it? it it's still there. The experiment okay. is Okay. running actually so it was a it's a seven-year experiment so not only does the trailer have to be there it had to last and it had to be able to maintain temperature and so it's made it through harvey it's made it through oh. a number of hard cycles and it's full like it's still full of food and and we just keep making sample pulls and doing the testing to see whether that refrigeration and freezing is going to make a difference so great maya's trailer awesome <laughs> And that's not on the side of the trailer. (laughs) If you get on the tram at Johnson Space Center, you may see it, but it's not marked. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, this has been great. This has been great, Maya. Just the end of the interview, but I want to get to this quick hitter session where I ask you questions for fun for people to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, Before I do that, though, I want to find out if there's anything additional that you would like to talk about or anything you feel like I might have left off asking you. No, you know, I would just encourage people, if you have a passion, there are tons of people who are passionate about space and they found a way to work at NASA. I wasn't necessarily passionate about space, but I was passionate about food. Um, I knew since my junior year in college that I wanted to work with food. So 
So if you just figure out what your passion is, then you can pretty much get to the point to where you can find a job associated with that field. Great advice. Thank you. All right. So let's go to these quick hitter questions. First one. Okay. What's your favorite sports team? Houston Texans. All right. I'm sort of sad this year. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. What's your favorite movie or show? Movie or show? Grey's Anatomy. All right. Favorite musical artist or group? Um, I'm supposed to be faster than this, right? <laughs> no, you're um, <laughs> Mary J. Blige. Nice. <laughs> Good one. Uh, favorite vacation spot? Bahamas. All right. And favorite food or drink? Oh, that's really hard to ask <laughs> a person who loves food. Right. Exactly. Um, I was waiting for this one. <laughs> um, oh. Scientist. <laughs> um, Seafood. I know, right? Um, oh, I love I love food. Um, seafood. seafood. We'll go with seafood, okay. maybe salmon or um, I love like a good shrimp dish too. So. Nice. There are tons of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, my this has been great. Like I said, uh, I learned a lot with this. I love that you are doing something you're passionate about and you can tell you're passionate about it too. You're developing the space food, such a very fascinating job career. And just want to just congratulate you on all the accomplishments that you've done and all that you're doing, all the good that you're doing. So thank you so much for coming on to this podcast. And is there any way that people can reach out to you if they have any questions? We would suggest that because we are controlled in our external communications, yeah. that if people have questions about the space program, that they go through the NASA Public Affairs Office. And then they link those questions with the appropriate scientists to answer. Sounds good. All right. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. It's All right. Been a All pleasure. Right. Great. Great. Have a good one. Thank you, everyone. If you have any comments or questions or would like to be on the podcast, please reach out to me on Instagram at Rodolfo Cooper. Thank you. Bye.